as I was looking through Facebook this week, looking through Facebook, I'll turn this one off. How about that? It is off. Okay. I'll just stand here. As I was looking through Facebook this week, this cartoon came up. Can you see that? The three kings there saying, right, we've got the gold and the myrrh. What on earth is that? It's Frankenstein, in case you can't see. What on earth is that? Frankenstein. Frankincense is one of the strange gifts. Uh, gold, you can understand. Myrrh, we can explain. But frankincense is something very weird for us. So we see them at the... We, of course, don't have three kings. We have three gifts. And the kings are portrayed bringing their gifts and presenting them to the infant Jesus. He probably wasn't brand newborn that day when they arrived. If you read the books carefully, it suggests that probably up to a year or two years old Jesus was when they came. But they certainly brought the three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This week we're talking about frankincense. It's a strange word. It comes from the Old English, which we borrowed from the Old French, where frank means noble or pure. So France, the land of the Franks, is the land of the noble and the pure. And Frankincense just literally means high-quality incense. That's what, that's what our English word frankincense means, high quality or noble incense. In the Greek of the New Testament, the word used is libanos, sometimes translated olibanum. So if you ever get a perfume or something that says olibanum, it's frankincense. It comes from certain trees that are found in Arabia and the Horn of Africa around that part of the world. The word only appears once in the Bible before we read it here in Matthew chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 30, frankincense is described as one of the ingredients in a special mixture of incense that was to be burnt in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God's people would make sacrifices and offerings to God. In Exodus chapter 30, by the way, is one of the places where myrrh is mentioned. Last week I had a typo on the screen and said Exodus chapter 20. No, Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 30 is myrrh and frankincense. So, if you want to look those up, you're welcome to read Exodus chapter 30 and see all about that. Frankincense only appears one more time in the Bible. After he, so, if they're in Exodus, here in Matthew chapter 2, and then in Revelation chapter 18, where it's used as a description of luxury trade good in a long list of things to show the wealth and power of Babylon, the city that is to be destroyed. So, frankincense, this high-quality incense, or olibanum, is expensive. It's rare. It's used in religious ceremonies by priests, and not just Jewish priests. But in a biblical context, it's closely associated with worship, and sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple. The mixture is regarded as sacred and holy and only to be used by the priests. And here in Matthew chapter 2, Magi present this gift as a gift to a young boy. Our famous carol is about the kings of the Orient. The three kings of Orient are. By the way, does anyone know the opposite of Orient? What's the opposite word? West, yes. Disorient, no. Orient means east. The word for west is Occident. Did you know that? You'll all get 10 points for the next trivia competition. Orient means east. Occident means west. 
But of course, when you're in England, the only place west is the ocean, so no one ever talks about the Occident. They only talk about the Orient. So the three kings of Orient, the East, in that song it talks about the gifts in terms of king and God and sacrifice. And the verse about the frankincense goes like this. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him God most high. Oh, and we won't sing the rest. The idea being that because Jesus is the son of God, the magi, the wise men, gave him frankincense. Another idea is that Jesus is, in fact, prophet and priest and king. So the Magi gave him the gift of frankincense as a symbol of his role as a priest. Last week we spoke about Jesus as the prophet, the one who speaks the very words of God, who tells us what God's message is, what God wants, who represents God to people, who reveals God to humanity. A priest, in many ways, does the opposite job. Prophets represent God to people. The job of the priest is to represent the people to God. In most cultures throughout history, there have been priests, people whose job it is to do the necessary work, to make the sacrifices, to chant the required prayers, to do the rituals that in some way please the gods so the crops will grow and the disasters will stay away. In the Jewish religion, these priests were the descendants of Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and specifically the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Their task was to maintain the tabernacle, and then the temple, to care for the sacred objects, to make the necessary sacrifices at the right time, to ensure the forgiveness of sin, and to gain the blessing of God. And a great deal of the Old Testament is about the priests, the way they were to do their tasks, and then stories about what happens when priests do the wrong things, become corrupt and wicked, and the problems that result. Usually when a priest goes bad, God sends a prophet to let folks know that God is not happy. So the two roles are often in conflict in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we often see prophets and priests at loggerheads with each other. But in Jesus, we see a different kind of priest. In Psalm 110, written hundreds of years before Jesus, there are a whole bunch of predictions about the Messiah, about the Savior, the coming King. And one of them is that he will be a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is a reference further back in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, when Abraham, having one of his adventures, gives an offering gives a tithe to Melchizedek, a priest, a strange figure who appears in the narrative as if from nowhere and then disappears again. The point of all of this is that the Messiah is a different kind of priest, not a descendant of Aaron, but a superior kind. The book of Hebrews dwells on this superior kind of priest for a fair bit, which is where we now turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 7 got your Bibles, you might like to follow along. Hebrews is, for me, the most confusing book of the Bible. It has some high points that I love, 
But by and large, I steer clear of it because it upsets me. And it's hard to explain. I like things to be simple and plain, like my wife. No, I like things... That's <laughs> terrible. When my wife says to me, when we were first dating, she said, would you mind if I got earrings? I said, yes, I would mind. I think I'd, I'd drop you immediately. I like, I like her just as she is. She's perfect. Why would you improve on perfection? Is what I'm trying to say. That's not what it came out as. I apologize. Let me say that line again. I like things simple and plain, like the gospel of Mark. Mark is a simple gospel for simple people, and that's me. But the book of Hebrews is complicated and convoluted and has all these backstories and he's drawing all these metaphors and sometimes you just go, oh, what are you trying to say? But here in chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, the writer to the Hebrews gives a good long bit about Melchizedek. If you want to know more about him, read the first chunk of chapter 7. And the writer makes the argument that this Melchizedek is a superior kind of priest and that Jesus is also a superior kind of priest. That Jesus is that superior kind of priest. And the writer of the Hebrews almost, almost, almost says actually that Melchizedek in the Old Testament is Jesus, which to me makes the most sense of all, but he doesn't quite say that, so we can't say it either. But the writer of the Hebrews then makes a couple of points to show how Jesus is better than the regular run-of-the-mill Jewish priests. And so we'll read from verse 23. The writer says, Now there have been many of those priests, these Jewish priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is some complicated, comes in complicated verses, and I've got a couple of points about them. First of all, Jesus emptied himself of the outward manifestation of equality with God. He took on the form of a servant. He was made like a human being. He did this to fully identify with us with those of us for whom he would make atonement. He goes to God the Father on our behalf because he has made himself one of us. This is the great importance of the incarnation, of the Christmas story, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus is both truly and properly God and truly and properly man. Or as Paul puts it, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And having come to earth as a human being, Jesus becomes, yes, a prophet, which we talked about last week, the one who tells us God's message and shows us what God is really about, but he also becomes a priest, 
and represents human beings to God, making the necessary sacrifice and fulfilling the ritual and completing all the requirements so that we can have fellowship and friendship with God. And here in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer makes the point that Jesus is better than the many Jewish priests because they kept on dying, whereas Jesus is alive forever. No more changing priests as they get too old. Jesus is our priest, and he does not die. He is a permanent priest. Secondly, the writer says, because Jesus does not die, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. He is always making intercession for his people. It's a wonderful thing to contemplate that Jesus is praying for you. He is arguing your case. He is on your side. You don't need a human priest to make prayers on your behalf. You don't need a saint or a holy patron or someone chanting and burning incense for you. You can have Jesus as your priest, your intercessor. Thirdly, Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is better than the old priests because he himself is without sin. He isn't a corrupt and wicked priest out for his own benefit. We've seen and heard enough in recent years about wicked and corrupt religious leaders. Jesus is not like that. He is without sin. Your salvation does not depend in any way upon the righteous behavior of the bloke at the front on a Sunday. It rests entirely upon Jesus, upon how good he is. And that's good news. And finally, Hebrews reminds us that our salvation, our standing with God is settled, is complete, is D-O-N-E. Done. In verse 27, he writes, or she writes, the writer writes, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once when he offered himself. And also in Hebrews chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 11, these are some great verses to remember. The writer says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when this Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Jewish priests had to keep on making sacrifices. They were never done. They were always at work. But when this priest, this Jesus, offered for one time, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By his death on the cross, Jesus has made the final sacrifice, paid the ultimate price, a perfect, sinless life offered for you and me. And that's the end of that. 
We don't need more sacrifices. Jesus has paid it all. We don't need more good works. Jesus has done them all. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. One and done. Are there any questions this morning before I conclude? Any questions about anything I've said this week or last week? Anything that stands out to you you'd like to know more about? Don't see any hands? That's all right. I see hands. I don't see any hands. I don't see any hands as hands. All right. If you do have questions, my email address is there, my phone number's there. I'd love to discuss these things with you. The Magi brought three gifts. One represents Jesus being the prophet, the one who shows us what God is really like. The second gift represents Jesus as the priest, the great high priest, the one who makes the ultimate and final sacrifice himself. Your salvation, your eternal destiny does not rest on your own hard work or good deeds or clean hands or pure heart rests entirely on Jesus, on how good he is, and what he has done. Jesus calls on us to repent and to believe, to trust him completely, follow his way, to rely entirely on him. A song for reflection says this, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for what he has done. Father God, I thank you that as the great high priest, he is now sitting at your right hand, and he is done with the sacrifices. Father God, I thank you for that. But Father, I thank you that he is there interceding for us each and every day, every moment of every day, that he is on our side, pleading our case. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for the people listening here today, that if there's anyone here who's trusting in the works of men to save them, whether that be their own good works or the good works of someone else, an ancestor or a holy man or a saint or a patron or something like that. Father God, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit, you would cause your Holy Spirit to draw these people to faith and repentance, to trust only in the shed blood of Jesus, what he has done for us. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. There is no other name. Amen. Amen. I invite our worship group to come, take their place on the platform. We'll sing our final song. Thank you to those who are stepping in this week to help with the music.